The following message is from North Place Church. We hope the next few moments will allow you to experience Christ, community, and compassion. For more about North Place Church, find us online at northplacechurch.com. Today I want to make some very introductory comments about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Our conversation will serve as the foundation for the next few weeks. Uh, I'm going to do a series, and I really don't know if it's going to be two weeks, three weeks. I don't want to kind of box myself in, uh, but it's, I'm going to have a conversation about when the Holy Spirit comes. What does it look like in our life, in the public setting, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes in a biblical way? What, is, what does that look like? Uh, I do know, even though I don't know exactly how long it's going to take, I do feel strongly led of God to have this conversation, and I have for some time, especially prior to our move into the new facility, and uh, believe it or not, that's going to happen in eight to ten weeks, and that's just amazing to me that after nine years of moving that direction, we are actually in eight to nine weeks, maybe ten, unless something crazy happens and delays it beyond our control We'll be having our first worship service in that new facility. So this is the time to have that conversation. So over the next few weeks, I hope to cover topics such as what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that people talk about and what is the phenomena of speaking in tongues and what does it mean and is it for today? Are gifts like tongues and prophecy and working of miracles, are they even meant to be for today? And if they are... What is the biblical pattern of how those gifts operate in a public worship environment? My heart over the next few weeks is to have a conversation about these matters in a very honest and open way, not in some dogmatic or argumentative way. I know that many of us come from backgrounds that are unfamiliar to the work of the Holy Spirit, and in even some cases we come from backgrounds that have been taught against the work of the Holy Spirit in that way, and so at least my hope is to bring some fresh insight, to give you some resources for further study, and invite you on a journey, a biblical journey, to experience the power of the Holy Spirit fresh and new in your life. When I talk about these things, exposing the new or the unlearned or unfamiliar to these things, uh, this work of the Spirit, that's exciting to me. The most challenging part of talking about these things are to people who have been around the work of the Spirit or revival or denominations that celebrate the work of the Spirit. That's where the greatest challenge comes from because those people have a paradigm or expectation of what they think it's supposed to look like when the Holy Spirit comes. And so they have a tendency of trying to force God and all the rest of us into their box and to what it's supposed to look like when the Holy Spirit comes. But we cannot let nostalgia, culture, tradition, or denominational expectations set the parameters for the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is what sets the parameters and the structure for the move of the Spirit of God in our lives. As we saw on the video just a moment ago, uh, Ephesians 2.22 says, And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives, and the key here, by His Spirit. God makes a dwelling place in us by His Spirit. The amazing fact is that you and I are the dwelling place of God, and the way that happens is by the work of His Spirit. 
One of the difficult things in talking about or preaching about the Holy Spirit today is that people have a built-up prejudice one way or another about the Holy Spirit. The body of Christ is divided. On one side, you have a group that says they're simply going to trust the Word because they want to avoid the emotionalism and the fanaticism of the people who talk about the Holy Spirit. Their fear has been fed in part by the other side who has given the Holy Spirit a bad reputation with their wild excesses. They have turned the work of the Spirit into a carnival type sideshow and they have blamed it on the Holy Spirit. And in that crowd, there are a lot of ministers who use emotionalism and fanaticism and excess for personal gain and they say it's the Holy Spirit's work. So the Holy Spirit is caught in the middle. This success that is a carnival of chaos, this success that says we're going to avoid the emotionalism and fanaticism, and we're just going to stay focused on the Word because we don't want to get all in that hype, the Holy Spirit is caught in the middle. But to say you're only going to focus on the Word but not focus on the Spirit is to ignore the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Word of God, and there is a lot to say in the Word of God about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So on one extreme, one group is abusing the Holy Spirit and keeping people from experiencing Him because of the excess. On the other hand, another group is using their influence and keeping people from experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit because they are ignoring it altogether and both are guilty due to the extremes. My friend, Mark Batterson, who is an author and a pastor, made this statement the other day and I wrote it down. If you ignore one-third of the God head, you are functioning at two-thirds spiritual capacity. Another problem is that people have tried to make the Holy Spirit its own religion, and they have developed their entire belief system around the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is the center of your belief system, then you're not a Christian. You're not following Christianity because Christianity is centered around Christ. When Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in the book of John, he says when the Holy Spirit comes, he isn't going to teach about himself, he's not going to draw attention to himself, but he's going to put the spotlight on Jesus, he's going to exalt Jesus, he's going to make the things of Christ real to the hearts of those who follow Jesus. And I think that's a good place to start in a conversation of when the Spirit comes. Look at what Jesus said when he was talking about the Spirit and describing what was going to happen when the Spirit comes. I think that's a great place to start. So look at John 16, verse number 1. The Bible says, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus is talking this context. He has been with his disciples. He's invested in them. His time on earth is coming to an end. And he is about to ascend uh, into heaven, and he is trying to leave some last-minute instructions. So these are his last-minute instructions, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning. Because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
The advocate in this situation literally translates comforter, encourager, counselor. The Greek word here is paraclete, which is often a word used for the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, it says, I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But he, the spirit of truth, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own will. He will speak only what he hears and only what he will only tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to reveal Jesus and to glorify Jesus and to exalt Jesus, not himself. I am bothered when I travel to large metropolitan cities along the East Coast or I go back to Europe. And I see these massive buildings that were once great churches. They have these beautiful stained glass windows and this amazing architecture. And many of them have been turned into museums. Some of them have been closed altogether and there's some sort of museum. Others of them are open as museums Monday through Saturday. And they are, especially in Europe, they are churches for a small band of Christ followers on Sunday. A dying, decaying church. People travel from all over the world and they marvel at the architecture of those beautiful old churches. But when I see them, my heart grieves because when I look at that empty building, I know at one time the supernatural work of God through His Spirit was alive in this place. There was momentum that caused the resources to be available and the need for this building to be built. But over time, somewhere along the way, the Spirit of God that brought life and vibrancy to a now empty, decaying, and enshrined building has left. He has been grieved. He has been forgotten. He has been ignored. Somewhere along the way, the only thing that can bring real life to a person or a church made his exit. Human activity may have continued, but the real life of God's Spirit is absent. Samuel Chadwick uh, was a Methodist leader and college president in England, born in 1830, and he died in 1932. Samuel Chadwick said this, The Christian religion is hopeless without the Holy Ghost. God sent Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The world is full of books about God. The world is full of books about Jesus. Matter of fact, there are probably more books in the libraries of the world about Jesus than there is any other human being that has ever lived. And there has very little been written or said in the expanse of church history about the Holy Spirit. And yet, He, the Spirit, is the only agent of God on planet earth at this moment. The only experience we can have of God, the only way the work of Jesus can be applied to our life, the only way we can understand the person of Christ is through the work of the Spirit. The Father sent the Son. The Son completed His work. The Scripture says Jesus is now making intercession for us, seated at the right hand of the Father. But before He left... He gave the disciples some instruction because they were getting worried about how they were going to carry on without him. And in verse 7 of John 16, we read a moment ago, he said to these disciples, it is for your benefit that I go away. You're going to be better off because I'm going to leave. Now, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment because they're trying to figure out how's it going to be better for us 
if you're not here. We've left everything familiar to us. We've left our families. We've left our careers. We walked away from our nets. We walked away from our carpentry jobs. We walked away from our tax collecting, basically the IRS of their day. We had secure jobs. We left everything that was secure because we bought into your vision. You said that if we followed you, we were going to change the world. And how are we going to change the world if you leave? If If you're not here, not only was he their leader and teacher, but he was their friend. They had done life with this man. They had watched him raise the dead. They had seen him unstop deaf ears and open blinded eyes. They believed he was more than a man. They believed he was the son of God. And in their expectation, he's going to set up his rule and reign on earth. He's going to have a governmental structure and they're going to have seats of authority in that structure. And they left everything to follow him to do just that. And now he says he's going to leave. It's hard for them to understand. You see, Jesus had accomplished his work on the cross. He became our substitute in God's justice system, shed his blood to pardon us for sin uh, through his grace. But there was something Jesus could not do while he was in the flesh on planet earth. Something only the Holy Spirit could do. You see, Jesus, when he was here, could teach from the outside. He could be an external influence on them. They could hear his voice. They could see the expressions on his face. They could touch him. They could feel him. He was an external influence on them. But what he could never do when he was here in the flesh is get on the inside of them where the real problems lie. Because it's down deep in the human heart that is the seat of the problems of humanity. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that out of the heart springs the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Jesus is saying, I have been with you, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be in you. In fact, the Bible describes a Christian as someone who believes in Christ to the point that they are spiritually reborn or born again. And now at that moment, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside their life. Romans 8, 9 says, but you are not controlled by the sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit If you have the Spirit of God living in you, and remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. The Spirit of Christ is another way of saying the Holy Spirit. So what it's saying is the moment you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life and have a genuine encounter with Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes into you at that moment, inhabits you, takes up residence in your life, and begins to make the life of Christ real inside you. So now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer here on earth in the flesh. And yet the Bible says in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus told us, Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. So how can he be seated at the right hand of the Father, no longer walking the earth in the flesh, and yet he told us on days like today, when two or three are gathered together in his name, he was going to be in the midst. How is he in the midst of us today? By the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the presence of Jesus real to us. The Holy Spirit is the only agent of God on planet earth. And yet he is underpreached, underappreciated, neglected in our churches, and often neglected in our personal lives. The Spirit of God is the only way we understand the Bible, have power in our church and in our personal lives, and see genuine transformation happen in anybody's life. It's through the Spirit. When you're reading the Bible and you find you get this revelation and you understand it, and all, that's what God's saying. That revelation from the Word comes when the Spirit quickens the Word of God into your life. I'm not so sure the early apostles would recognize what we call Christianity if they were alive today. And I say that for a lot of reasons, especially the American version of Christianity. And I I say that for a lot of reasons, but especially to do with the fact there was this personal and intimate relationship they had with Jesus, this power that was made available to them through the work of the Spirit. And when you compare that to the church's modern neglect of the Spirit, especially in the U.S., I don't know if they would recognize what we call Christian church. You have to remember that everything we read in the New Testament centers around the power of the Spirit at work in New Testament believers. When you read the book of Acts in some of our Bibles, it says, the translators titled it, The Acts of the Apostles. I think it would probably be more accurately titled, The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles. The church wasn't born when the disciples started following Jesus. The church was born when the Holy Spirit came into the upper room in Acts 2 and empowered them to do God's will on earth. And when the Holy Spirit came, everything changed. And one example of that dramatic change is the life of the Apostle Peter. He was brash, stick your foot in your mouth, bumbling disciple. He had a lot of potential, but he had a lot of rough edges. Peter was in that conversation the disciples were having when they were walking down the road about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. See, they had this idea Jesus was going to set up not only a religious empire, but a political empire. And because they were so close to him, they were going to get privileged seats of authority. And they were fighting over who was going to get the highest seat of authority. And Peter was among that group, politicking and posturing and comparing and striving for those positions of power and positions of authority. And at least Jesus asking the question, did he have a good enough teacher? Yes, Jesus was his teacher. Was he really being fed the word to be having those kind of arguments? Yes, Jesus was his pastor. Did he have the right role model and mentor? Yes, Jesus was his mentor. He had it all. But when the pressure was on, he denied Christ. In the moment of his denial of Christ, what happened to all that discipleship? What happened to all that mentoring? What happened to all that modeling of of witness that Jesus shared with him firsthand? Why didn't it work? Because no outward teaching can replace the inward work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. No outward teaching can replace the inward work of the Holy Spirit. There are people that have four degrees in theology and have no power in their everyday life. There are people who know the scripture so well they can argue it with anybody, but there is not an active work of the Holy Spirit. Improving your intellect is important, and when you combine that knowledge with the Spirit, that's knowledge on fire, and God can use that. But when all that you do is feed your head and 
and never let the Spirit be applied to your life. Transformation doesn't happen when you put more knowledge here. Revival is a 15-inch journey from your head to your heart. And that information, it transforms you when the Spirit quickens it in internal transformation. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up to preach after filled with the Spirit, he is a completely different man than the one a few hours earlier. A few hours before that sermon, he had denied Christ. And now he gets up, this coward, and courageously preaches the message that he had just denied because of the transforming power of the Spirit had invaded his life. And if you follow him through the book of Acts, you will see him grow in wisdom and in the power of God. If you read church history, you will learn that this man who was once a coward and denied Christ was courageous to the end and was given an opportunity to reject Christ. He chose to keep his faith in Christ and he was crucified, according to church history, upside down for his courageous faith. He's now full of courage, a different man than before. Peter's life confirms what Jesus said. It is better for you that I go away so the Holy Spirit can come. I've been with you. Now the Holy Spirit will be in you. And I want to challenge you today to rediscover intimacy with God available through a walk with the Spirit. I want our church to experience a fresh, tailor-made move of the Holy Spirit that is just right for us in this season. I want us to know, to walk with, be filled with this supernatural agent of God on earth. Remember, the Apostle Paul tells us this. And I mean, this may not, I mean, this may not stir you up, but these kinds of things stir me up when connections like this are being made. First Corinthians six nineteen says, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? I mean, you, your body is the dwelling place of God on earth." Now, the significance of that statement, in order to get it, you got to rewind. God created this whole place and put in it a garden known as Eden. And he decided because he wanted to hang out with us so badly that he was going to come every day and take a very intimate walk with Adam and Eve. The presence of God was unrestricted, unbridled. There was no inhibition, no, no boundaries between Adam and Eve and God. I mean, there was this amazing experience of the glory and the presence of God in Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, it severed that relationship. And the entire narrative of the rest of the Bible is this compassionate, loving God pursuing sinners. These wayward, exiled peoples. And he's trying to find out, how do I, as a holy God, manifest my presence among these sinful people because I want to be with them so badly. And so he pursues us. And when you see him in the Old Testament, he instructs them to build a tent. It was called the tent of meeting. And it was a tabernacle type environment. And God wants wanted to be with these people so bad that he came and hung out his glory hung out in a tent and then he told them uh, as they matured and he told them to build a, a temple so they would no longer be a wandering people they would be a permanent people and he said I'm going to fill that temple with my glory and when you read the Old Testament you find that the, the glory of God came into that temple and it was so heavy that the priest could not even stand to perform their duty so the same presence that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden that was he just wanted to be with us he came in a restricted way because sin's now in the world but he came 
came to a temple, a, a tabernacle, his glory came there. A little bit of Eden came to the tabernacle. Then his glory showed up in the, in the, in the temple so that the men could not even stand to do the ministry. His weight, his glory was so heavy. A little bit of Eden came to the temple. And then you fast forward to the, the book of John. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So from Eden, the glory of God in a tent of meeting, to the glory of God in the temple, and you fast forward and you see Jesus becoming in flesh the dwelling place of God on earth. Matter of fact, when John said God made His dwelling among us, the word literally translates God tabernacle among us. So Jesus became the tabernacle. Jesus became, he even called himself the temple. He became the dwelling place of God on earth. And yet he says, I'm going to go away. So the spirit, the glory of God that dwells in me can now dwell in each of you so that the apostle Paul now says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God on earth is you. As a Christ follower, a little bit of Eden, a little bit of the glory of the tent, a little bit of the glory of the temple, the spirit that was in Jesus is now in the heart of every Jesus professing Christ follower that has made him the Lord and Savior of their life. That spirit is in you. You are the dwelling place of God. What? Amen. What I love about it when you read it in the original language and when Paul says in, in chapter 6, you are the temple, you, don't you know that your bodies are the temple? He could have picked different words for temple there because in the temple there was the inner court of the temple where the glory dwelt. I mean, the priest could only go there once a day. I mean, the, I mean, the power of God was so that sin could not survive and people were literally died in the Old Testament in the inner court in the Shekinah glory of God. The outer court had another name in reference and Paul, when he picked the term for temple, he didn't pick the term for outer court. He said, you are the inner court. You are the inner holy of holies. You are the innermost court, the dwelling place of God. God chose to manifest himself in Eden and then in a tent, then in a tabernacle, and then in Jesus. And Jesus said, it's better for me to go away because I don't want the glory of God confined to a 33 and a half year old body. I want the glory of God in government. I want the glory of God in politics. I want the glory of God in education. I want the glory of God in arts and science. I want the glory of God in business. I want the glory of God in Africa, England, China, Spain, Saxe, Texas. All at the same time, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. Amen. For a lot of people, Christianity is only about a cross. It stops at forgiveness. There's no ongoing resurrection power in their lives through the work of the spirit on a day-to-day basis. That's why there are so many weak and defeated believers who are not walking in victory. And that's why there are so many impotent and powerless churches. People are being told about a cross, but few are connecting with the supernatural life of the Spirit that is at work for daily living. When Jesus went to the cross, he shed his blood. He took care of the past. It's gone. Sin is forgiven. He has promised to remember our sin no more. But I have another problem. Even if you take away all my sin, even if the past is gone, even if it's remembered no more, I'm still left with a big problem. Me. The same one who got into all this sin before is still here. 
So what about today? Or what about tomorrow when the evil one comes to tempt me? How am I going to reproduce the life of Christ today? In the face of sin, in the face of temptation, by straining in self-effort, in moral behavior, trying to be righteous? I tried that. It doesn't work. Because there is nothing in me that can produce Christ-likeness in and of myself. I need something beyond me. Something Christ-like, supernatural working in me to manifest the qualities of Jesus in my life. The Holy Spirit has to come so that can happen. And that's why Jesus said, it is better for you that I go away. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us, strengthens us against temptation, teaches us how to pray, makes the Word of God real to us when we read it. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the new covenant of God's grace, power in our lives. Look at the old covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments. Were those words carved on those tablets of stone? Did they give those people power to be righteous? No. Were those statements true? Yes. But did it give them power to be righteous? No. Why? Because there is a tendency for sin in the human heart, even though my conscience says, and the law tells me, this is right and this is wrong. The law says, don't commit adultery. Don't make idols. Don't lie. Don't steal. My conscience says, I know that because the law says not to do it, I'm not going to do it. But there are sinful tendencies in me that override what my conscience says that I know I'm supposed to do. That's why the scripture says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We don't possess the power to bear Christ-like fruit in our own merit. We need something outside of us. In the new covenant, the message is not just about a cross so we can be forgiven of our past, but the message is also about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so we can walk in victory in our daily lives. I'm afraid the American church, because the excess of some, has lost hope in the Holy Spirit. We have lost hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. How is God going to be glorified if lives aren't changed? And how are lives going to be changed without the power of the Spirit making Jesus real in our church, in our personal lives? We need to go back to the simple formula of the early church. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to know that power for witness is available to us today. The Holy Spirit enabled them to fulfill an impossible task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that power is available to us today. If there's ever been a week when North Place Church needed the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus real, it is the delegates of our faith family that will be representing you in front of these little kids uh, that have some of the hardest scars imaginable uh, and don't know how to express them and we don't know how to communicate with them. Some of us are trained caseworkers, but most of us aren't. And uh, we definitely need your prayer and the manifest presence of God in our lives so that this entire week builds up to that moment 
where a kid that's been closed writes, Dear God, and they open their heart to the Savior, to the healer, to the only one who can transform them. Our system is broken, and these children are products of a broken system, and we desperately need to give grace in these four or five days that we have with them. And that will only happen by Jesus being made real through the work of the Holy Spirit. I want the service host to help me today because I want you to have an opportunity to give this morning to Royal Family Kids Camp, and I'm going to ask them to prepare to, to, get, to give you an opportunity. We only do this one time a year. And, and I'm just going to, I'm going to say a couple things before we go about the work of the spirit and some things I believe God asked me <laughs> to share with you today. But I, I really want to give you this opportunity. Um, it costs us about $50,000 as a church, a significant slice of our budget to uh, put on this camp. We've decided every year it's well worth it. Um, we invest more in our Royal Family Kids Camp than any other camp, Royal Family Kids Camp in the nation. Every year they ask us, what are you guys doing? And then when they come and audit it, they were like, this is amazing. Um, and so per capita, I mean, we, from our, the way we do the birthday party to, the, to the, the men's masculinity ceremony and the women's beauty ceremony, I mean, the things that we invest there are class act. I mean, we represent Jesus and you well. We have uh, about $10,000 shy of making that budget today. And um, we only come to you once a year. Some of you have graciously written Royal Family Kids Camp and something you do on a monthly basis has become a part of, you see it as a part of your missions. And, and uh, thank you so much in advance for that. That's the one reason we're probably ahead of schedule on our budget than we've been in previous years. I believe it's possible after today for us to go into camp uh, in the black and uh, not have to worry about our leaders of this camp, Taylor and Irene and Shane and Kara, not have to worry about uh, the financial side of things because uh, we heard the voice of the Spirit telling us what God wanted us to do today. And, and uh, I want to thank you in advance for making that investment. I'm going to ask our team if they would to come and serve you today and give you an opportunity to invest in transformation. And um, I'm going to pray in a moment to dismiss the service, but if you guys will go ahead and begin to serve, um, you can, all of this, cash, whatever, it's all going to RFK. So if you don't designate it, if you write a check, North Place Church, it'll all go to Royal Family Kids Camp. If you didn't bring anything you want to give online, you can go online to the church's uh, online giving portal. Just make sure you designate it on that giving portal to RFKC or Royal Family so we know it gets credited into the right budget. Let me say this. I really felt led to say this on a day where I was beginning a conversation on the work of the Spirit of God in His church. When the Holy Spirit comes. That's the statement that is going to frame our conversation for the next few weeks. Um, in eight weeks at best, ten weeks at worst, somewhere in there, we're going to have our first worship service in August. Uh, middle to the end of August in that new facility. Okay. Um, I've been talking to pastors who have led the transitions of churches into new worship facilities and getting their advice. I'm a learner. Help me. Let me learn what you did right. Help me learn what you did wrong. So we make this as smooth, as powerful, squeeze as much juice out of this for the kingdom as we possibly can. And uh, I've had them repetitively tell me, Pastor, make sure your people are aware, even though it's the same church, the same spirit, the same culture being transferred from one building to another, it's going to be different. Okay? So I want you to know that. 
Not because we're going to go over there and try to make it different. It's just going to be different. The room is bigger. Uh, there's different equipment in there. The experience is going to be different. And we hope better in every way. But one of the pastors said this to me. He said, even though you get over to that new building and the experience there is better in every way, some people, he said, I had six months into this new building better in every way. Some people came up to me and said, Pastor, can we go back and have one service on Sunday in the old building? Just, just one. Why? Because this is where you met Jesus. This is the environment where you felt the presence of God. This is the surrounding of what it was like when the glory of God became real to you, when he healed you, when he saved your kid, when, when he restored your marriage. This is where he did it, and you're leaving that familiarity. There's this nostalgia associated with this place, and when you leave it, uh, it's just not going to be the same. And so... I want you to understand, I think you know this, I want to bless that in you. I want to know, I want you to know when you feel that, when you get there, there's nothing to be guilty about feeling that. People who've made this transition uh, long before us have had those feelings. But I want you to know how to frame those feelings. I want you to know that those feelings, that is an emotional response, not a spiritual response. Okay? If we are the dwelling place of God on earth, And the Spirit of God is not confined. It would not be theologically correct or spiritually sound to go to that new place and say, Spirit of God's not here. Spirit of God was in the other building. Spirit of God's not here. Really? If you're the dwelling place of God and you are there and it has been built as a house to be the dwelling place of God on earth and we go, then this this building is made out of metal and sheetrock. That one's made out of concrete and a lot of it. And God is going to dwell there just like he has here. And I hope in greater ways. So when you get there and you say, it's just better at the old place. Well, it's better for you at the old place because of nostalgia. Just know that's an emotional response. It's not a spiritual response. Sooner or later, over time, that place will become home too. And there'll be people whose lives are changed there that couldn't imagine being anywhere else. So I just, I felt pastorally that God encouraged me to prepare you for that. That place is going to be the dwelling place of God. And the issue is His presence, His glory, not the address or the surroundings. If we keep that in mind... The better quality and the better location won't go to our head because it'll never be about the structure. It'll be about his presence. If we keep that in mind, the nostalgia associated with here won't keep us from experiencing God there because it'll always be about his presence and the dwelling place of God. And if we keep that in mind, then his glory can dwell in the factory and the farm and at school. And we don't have to be at any of these addresses to have church. Because we are church, and it's not a building, it is a movement. And when you think about it theologically, it's humorous when the government thinks it can separate church and state. Because the church is a movement, and the dwelling place of God, He's tabernacling in you. So the glory of God is going to be there to manifest itself in the capital tomorrow, 
in every government agency tomorrow. It's going to be in every business tomorrow. Because you are, according to Paul, the inner court of the temple where the Shekinah dwelt. It's now in you. By His Spirit. You're the dwelling place of God. So don't, don't box him into some idol or some building or some denominational expectation or some culture or some tradition. Let's give him a blank canvas, arrayed all, all of our lines and say, uh, we, it's like we tell God praying for revival and praying for a move of the Holy Spirit is we've got this canvas and we draw this black line on it and, and say, okay, God, that's what it looked like in 1940, color there. Okay, God, that's what the assemblies of God said it's supposed to be color there. That's what the Baptist said it's supposed to be color in those lines. God's not going to color in nobody's lines. He's telling us, erase all your lines. Just give me a blank canvas and let me draw and do what I want to do through my spirit today. The only boundary of how the spirit is going to move today, he's laid out in his word, not by the Mecca of some denomination or doctrinal statement of some church, it's his word, not tradition, culture, or expectation. Amen? Stand with me today, if you will. Father, today, we want your spirit to come and make Jesus real to us so we can make him real to hurting kids this week. So we can make him real where we work and in the neighborhoods we live in and the communities and businesses that we serve in. There's not enough, there's not anything in us, Jesus, enough. We need something outside of us. Come. And will you let that power flow from us today and this week? Lord, will you bless your people? Will you keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction and will you give them peace? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Go in the power of his spirit today. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from North Place. Feel free to share or duplicate this message. If you are in the Dallas area, we would love to gather every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m.